Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Michael Schellenberger. You can follow him on Twitter, at SchellenbergerMD. Michael has had a long career as a writer and policy advisor, focusing primarily on environmental issues. He's the founder and president of Environmental Progress, and he has an impressive and much-discussed new book that came out this summer. It's called Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, first, you know, I wanted to mention that we uh, published a short profile of you and some of your colleagues all the way back in our winter 2013 issue. There was a piece called The Rise of the Nuclear Greens. Ah. Now, a, lot, a lot has changed since 2013, obviously. Uh, back then, we were just a couple of years removed from the Fukushima disaster in Japan. But you were one of the few people, certainly one of the only ones who were broadly uh, in the environmental camp, who were calling for a recommitment to nuclear power here in the United States. Now, we've, we've published a, a number of pieces since then uh, by Jim Miggs and others on you know, advances in nuclear uh, technology that might make uh, nuclear power more feasible going forward. I wonder if you could give our listeners uh, how you see the current state of nuclear power in the United States and what has changed over the last decade. Sure. I think it's important to start with just first a recognition that nuclear energy is a totally radical technology. It's a a very dangerous technology. Um, And let me say also that it's the safest way to make electricity. So it has the it's a paradoxical technology. It's our most destructive weapon, but it's also clearly had an impact on making nations more peaceful. That's not a controversial view. That's a mainstream view that deterrence has had this incredible impact, but it's shocking and in some ways terrible <laughs> that the human primate animal was tamed through this really powerful weapon. And I say all that because I actually think the focus on what kind of reactor design it is and whether the coolant is water or chemicals or sodium or fluoride and beryllium, it's irrelevant to the broader issue. And and we people race to, I think, the technological fixes. And in fact, Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the bomb, thought he could denature uranium in ways that would make that would split off the civilian from the military. And that's not possible um, for the basic physical reasons. And so, so for me, I am an outlier, both as an environmentalist who's pro-nuclear, but also as a pro-nuclear environmentalist who thinks that the existing that experience matters more than design, that we have 60, over 60 years of experience with a particular kind of design, that we should stick with it, that we're making it better, that incremental change is better, that radical change is bad, that radical change makes nuclear more expensive. And in fact, that it's opponents of the technology that have tried to make nuclear change and it's nuclear nerds, the STEM types who tend to control these research programs and have a disproportionate set of power in the nuclear industry that have gone along with these technical technological changes that have made nuclear expensive and difficult and complicated and frustrating for basically everybody involved in it. And that's generally why we're stuck, in your view, why there hasn't been much uh, 
advance in terms of, in fact, there's been none in the United States in terms of building uh, new nuclear power generators. Um, and in fact, we're going in the other direction, right? We're, we're shutting uh, many of them down, including here in New York, where Indian Point is scheduled to be uh, de decommissioned uh, just outside the city. Yeah, I mean, here you have the source of energy that is undeniably superior on every social and environmental metric. It requires almost no land. You know, on a piece of land the size of a college campus, you can generate electricity for three to five million people. There's no other energy source that allows you to do that. There's basically, they don't even rip up the ground anymore to mine the uranium. They can just run hot water underground to get it. The waste byproducts are entirely stored at the site of production, which has long been the ecological and environmental dream of any kind of production, that you don't discharge your waste in the environment. Only nuclear does that. It, it requires sophistication. It requires technological capabilities. It requires discipline. It requires care. It's an, it demands more from people than a coal plant or even a natural gas plant, which are pretty com complex now. Um, it's obviously the highest, most superior form of energy, just at a straight engineering environmental standpoint. Zero air and water pollution. Zero. Because I don't count the warm water that comes out of nuclear plants as pollution. In fact, it's cleaner usually than the water that goes in. So so it's obviously the best environmentally. So why is it, doesn't everybody love it? Well, I, in the book, I document two things that I can't entirely separate or weight differently. But one of them is Malthusianism, which is a kind of anti-human, anti-progress, dystopian. It's the dismal, <laughs> the dismal, was where the dismal and the dismal, dismal economics comes from. Um, we all know what that is. You know, we all have to do with less and be poorer, basically, the Malthusian tradition. But the other one is anti-weapons. And the anti-weapons problem, or the problem or the solution, depending on your point of view, because it's paradoxical, is so radical. I mean, I think you don't really, people don't really appreciate what this technology is until North Korea gets it. And then North Korea gets it. And people go, oh, that's what it's about. It's about this. It's about a radical change to human relations. You know, and the best scholars of this, I in the book, one of the characters actually in the book is my friend, Richard Rhodes, who won the Pulitzer Prize for the making of the atomic bomb, has some very interesting thoughts about death and apocalypse and nuclear, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. And he says too very clearly, this radically alters human relations. And, and so much so that, I mean, what other technology do people not want to talk about the main function of it? You know, in the nuclear, in people that like nuclear, they can't stand it when I talk about what nuclear really is, that its primary function is as a weapon um, and that its primary function of the weapon is never to be you know, detonated, to be used by not being used. It demands something of human consciousness that no other weapon has ever demanded of us. Gunpowder made big demands and gunpowder changed the world, it allowed for the rise of nation states. Nuclear is doing something else. And, and so... Yeah, people kind of go, Fukushima, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island. I look at those accidents now, especially having written on them and researched them for so long. And I go, yeah, like the reason you think those were significant accidents is because you were projecting onto them fears of the bomb. Because when you look at the accidents, so few people are affected by radiation. And radiation turns out to have such a smaller impact than air pollution. 
And so this desire to kind of change nuclear, to make it something that it's not, I have a lot of people that tell me that we should just change the name of it, that if we change the name of it, it would solve all the problems with it. It's a kind of immaturity, I think. And so what I tried to do in Apocalypse Never, which by the way, was a book about nuclear before it became a book about the environment. I changed the focus in part because nuclear is just too intense of a focus for people. But, but what it's trying to say is we need to grow up and recognize that we, you know, like it or not, are burdened with this technology and, and you can't make it go away. You can't ban the bomb for reasons we've understood since 1945. Um, so anyway, that's my, <laughs> right. it's a different view than most people have, but I felt like I, I, um, I wanted to get it out there that, that, and I find some of the, I just find a lot of this, the discussions about design very facile and, and, sure. You, know. uh, you, you wrote a very interesting piece for us a couple of weeks ago that's related to what you were just talking about. The, the piece was called Why the War on Nuclear Threatens Us All, although this one looked uh, more at the global situation, uh, talking about the China-Saudi deal to develop nuclear energy. Um, could you talk a little bit about that piece, that agreement between, uh, the China, uh, between China and the Saudis? And what China, Russia, and other countries are doing today when it comes to nuclear technology. Right. So to understand this, you have to go to the fact that the world has an agreement in place, which is called the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And what it says, it's basically built on a bunch of lies. But (laughs) one of them is that the countries with nuclear weapons are going to get rid of them. Um, There's no progress being made on that front. And there wasn't even under Obama. People... Partisans blame Trump, but really there was no progress being made, or I should say progress is the wrong word, but there's no movement in that direction. But it does say that everybody has the right to have nuclear power plants and to enrich the uranium um, for their power plants. But that process of enrichment allows you can enrich it more and make weapons. And so that's what Iran is about. And there's been some disagreement on right and left about what the best way to fulfill the promise that we have to Iran, which is that they have the right to enrich. Um, So now Saudi Arabia says we want to enrich and have nuclear plants as well. And then in a separate context, not like at the same time, Saudi Arabia's new, you know, chief sheik says um, that if Iran gets the bomb, so will we. In some ways, it's a banal comment. It sounds so dramatic. I mean, in from the perspective of international relations, it's a very banal comment because, well, of course, Saudi Arabia would want to have a nuclear weapon. That's what deterrence is. And this is not that would not be surprising. It would be surprising if he said he didn't want a weapon. Right. Right. Um, so the dispute is basically that the United States under pressure or the Congress under pressure from anti-nuclear, I think, pho- phobics, phobic anti-nuclear people, mostly Democrats. Ed Markey is sort of the worst actor in the Senate. Democrat from Massachusetts, but also Marco Rubio has been behaving badly. And frankly, so have other Republicans. They've said, well, we're we're not going to we're not going to help Saudi Arabia get nuclear power. Well, what you know, everybody said, if we don't help them, then they're going to just go work with the Chinese and Russians. And that's what they've done. So now they're going to work with the Chinese. And I just think it all stems from this underlying confusion about what this technology is and how to think about it. Because there's a kind of idea with nuclear that's been, it's always been about control, which has always been the United States needs to control it 
you know, and we tried to keep it from the British. It only pissed them off, by the way. Tried to keep it from the French. Really pissed off Dugal. Um, Try to keep it from everybody. Never works. <laughs> French help Israel get it, right? Um, you know, and and that that's not the right way to think about it. Like, on the other hand, people will say, oh, Michael, you just want everybody to get the bomb. I don't. Um, actually, I don't think that's necessary. I don't think Portugal needs a nuclear weapon. That's ridiculous. I don't even think Spain does. But France has one. And and maybe Germany should have one too, maybe Japan, maybe South Korea. But there's some sense in which it's not like you have to we have to stop acting like Zeus and punishing everybody for wanting to have the fire that we have and think of it in a more sophisticated way to sort of say there's in the ways I think that international relations scholars have for 75 years, which is to say it's going to spread. But many countries will just have what we call latency, which is they'll just have nuclear plants and enrichment. And that's OK. And that we should be working with those countries for Pete's sake. Because if we don't work with them, I point out that the line between soft and hard power runs directly through nuclear energy, because on the soft power side, you have the nuclear plants, which are these, you know, 10 or $20 billion projects. And on the hard power side, you obviously have the capability of a weapon that that runs through the technology. So, of course, the United States, it's in our highest national security interest to work with Saudi Arabia on its nuclear. I, this seems so obvious. I don't even need to say anything about it. I was on a podcast, by the way, with Dan Crenshaw, the the the, the congressman from Texas. You know, he's famous because he's got a, a patch on his eye. Yes. He was like he was at one point he's interrupting me. And he goes, I said, this is this is a national security problem. And he goes, he just kind of deadpans. Well, that much is clear. <laughs> it was like everybody. But it's everyone sort of it feels like everybody's in a state of suspended animation. You know, it's hard to get the White House worried enough. It's hard to get Republicans. I'm only finally now starting to talk to some Republicans who have been the stewards of this technology. But I think people don't understand. I'm more nuclear energy alarmist than I am a climate alarmist. I think that my alarmism on nuclear energy is warranted. I think alarmism on climate change is not. Well, that that's a good transition to uh, your book, um, which has the striking title, Apocalypse Never. Why environmental alarmism hurts us all. Uh, it's out, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the broadcast, from um, Harper Collins, as the publisher came out, you know, a few weeks ago, really. And we'll link to it in the description uh, of this episode. But I, I'd like, you know, you to talk a bit about what inspired you to write the book, um, and and you know, what are some of the other themes that you cover in it apart from nuclear power. So Apocalypse Never is really, you could sort of say there's three parts. There's sort of a straight debunking of environmental myths. And I just wanted to hit the big ones. Climate change. Not that climate change is a myth. I don't, let me, let me back up. <laughs> um, the, the big environmental myth that climate change, for example, is apocalyptic. That's the myth I'm debunking. Um, but the big, I go through the big issues, climate, deforestation, plastic waste, meat consumption, species extinction. And then it looks at in the middle of the book, how do humans save nature in the real world rather than in the fantasies of organics and renewables and low energy living. And, and so I look at, I make the case for urbanization, industrialization, fuel substitution, rising up the energy ladder from wood and dung to coal, to natural gas, to uranium. I talk about why renewables are bad for the environment, not good for it because they're so inefficient. They require three to 400 times more land. They don't produce enough energy to support an industrial civilization. Kind of go through that whole middle part. And then the third part of the book, 
Last third asks, why if environmental problems are real but manageable, why did we come to see them, and in many cases improving, by the way, why did we come to see them as the end of the world? You know, why do we project apocalyptic fantasies on climate change and not on to say cancer or, um, you know, <laughs> there's not like a movement of school children saying that we're all gonna die in 12 years from cancer, even though a fair number of us will die of cancer. Um, you know, you don't see it projected onto other problems. So why on climate change, and I look at money, power, and religion, and it, yeah, it kind of makes the case for, you know, I think it fairly can be called lukewarm. Um, I think climate change is real. I don't think it's the biggest problem in the world. I don't even think it's our biggest environmental problem. I think that the biggest environmental problems are the same ones they've always been, which is that we, we don't want pollution in our air and water. We want to leave more of the earth to species. That means we want to grow more food on less land and leave more of the earth to, to nature. So I'm sort of a, I'm a, I defend a kind of conservation in the book, although I recognize that it's been an extension of the colonial project in places like Africa and that that's not okay. And that needs to change in part by helping African nations industrialize. So I don't know if that's a thumbnail enough for you, Brian. Yeah, <laughs> I'll stop there. It's a, a, a good overview, and uh, you, you mentioned a, a kind of Malthusianism earlier. Your book seems directly counter to that spirit. It, you know, it's, it's almost old-fashioned uh, progressive in, in spirit in a way, uh, or, or optimistic about the future. Um, I wonder, uh, you know, what, what the reception has been like. Uh, certainly, you know, you're, you're, you, you've always been associated with environmental causes, but there has to be some pushback from some of the Greens to your arguments. Yeah, so I mean, the first set of responses was the was the blurbs, which I'm much more proud of than almost anything else, because the book is blurbed by liberals and conservatives. In fact, um, a very good socialist ecologist liked the book. There's actually nothing inconsistent. Like the book is completely consistent with a kind of pre-1970 maybe socialism, a kind of big statism. There's nothing particularly inconsistent about it. It does defend markets. My book defends markets and the importance of price in an almost Hayekian way in, in, in sending the price signal and on scarce resources. But it's not a kind of, in fact, there's a kind of subtle criticism of, of some of the overemphasis on markets too. But, but, you know, it felt like I got a nice, Law, you know, a nice uh, span of of support for the book, but the book was basically just ignored and not reviewed by the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, and most other mainstream publications. I had a very nice review of it in Wall Street Journal, but mostly it was just uh, you know greeted with you know horror and um, repudiation by <laughs> by the by the increasingly you know radical left media. Um, I will say, I see it having an impact in ways that are very, that are very hard to tell for people that are not really in the space, but just kind of in the ways that people are writing, the ways that reporters write articles, the greater sensitivity to some of the claims they've made. I keep documenting gross errors in the New York Times, by the way, and in other publications. I just did, um, you know, basically one big one this week is I just documented how everybody repeated this idea that somehow California's ancient redwoods, which have been around for 2000 years, 
would somehow have burned up in climate-induced fires in California. I mean, basically, that's what the national media reported. I mean, it was terrible misinformation. And of course, as soon as I heard it, I knew it was wrong because I know that ancient redwoods, that they need fire and that fire spreads in, in newspapers. So anyway, I'm di digressing a bit, but I, I guess in terms of the reception, you know, I'm disappointed that the left didn't even want to argue with it for the most part. Um, you know, that really the only kind of argument I think from the left of the book was in National Review and it was by my former colleagues. <laughs> and I'm not even sure it was coming from the left. So that I think tells you something, but a much more obviously supportive reaction from the right, which has been gratifying. But, it, you know, I wish that the situation, obviously I wish that the world were not as polarized as it is, because I think there's a lot of, a lot of stuff in the book. And frankly, the progressives who have read it have told their friends and even written you know, that other progressives ought to read it and take it seriously. Well, I hope that uh, happens. Thanks very much, Michael. Don't forget to check out Michael Schellenberger's uh, Peace for City Journal, uh, which we published a couple of weeks ago, Why the War on Nuclear Threatens Us All, and especially check out his book, Apocalypse Never, which you can find on Amazon. You can follow Mike on Twitter, at SchellenbergerMD, and make sure you follow City Journal, too, on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, as I always say, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. So thanks for listening, and thanks again, Michael Schellenberger, for joining us today. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.